Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning in. We are talking about health and spirituality, and today we have a special guest with us, Amy Tibbetts. And Amy Tibbetts is the director of the Lilac Center, and I am so thankful that you are here today, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I would like to start by just getting your story out a little bit, sort of like what's your background, where were you born? I mean, like a short summary of you know your 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 education, your career path, kind of let people know who you are and and what your background is. Sure. So um, I was born in Salina, Kansas, so not not too far from here, and um, my childhood was kind of. Uh, really super overwhelming and intense, actually. So um, I was in foster care and graduate, uh, didn't graduate from foster care, but left foster care and uh, went to college. So that was kind of my first uh, experience in mental health as far as uh, learning to give back to everything I'd already received. So um Graduated from K-State and then graduated from KU with my master's degree and in social work. I always um, had just a big heart for helping. And um, anyways, so started the Lilac Center in 99, 1999. Okay. And that's, um, it's been a wonderful uh, tool to kind of open up and expand mental health services to people in our community and it's kind of such a broad question so yeah, <laughs> it's no, so hard to kind great. of break it down <laughs> I was born in Wichita Kansas oh, but yeah? uh, my parents are still alive um, had had a great experience with them do you think your foster care experience like influenced your career path was that Something that yeah, so when, you? when I was in foster care, they had a fantastic program, and there was a grant through K-State. So I was in foster care in Manhattan, Kansas, and this grant um, came out where they actually sent people to meet with kids that were in foster care and help them enroll in college. Okay. And so um, that was uh, just a phenomenal experience to have somebody come to my foster home, walk through those steps, and uh, get me kind of on the way to higher education. Awesome. What did you major in, in at K-State? Social work also. Social work, okay. And so actually, my first job, so this was in uh, 1991. I was working at Pizza Hut, loved Pizza Hut. It was great job. But then I was offered a job after I went to college and um, was being quite successful to uh, do the same thing. So I met while I was in college with other kids that were in foster care and helped them enroll. And so that was my experience of getting into social work. Nice, nice. And then you did your master's in social work as well? Yes. uh And then what other education did you receive? Like, did you do your, what What do you do for your license in social work, your, your clinical license in social work? Is that another track? Uh, no. So after you graduate with your master's degree, you do two years of clinical work under supervision. And I did that at Wyandotte Mental Health. Okay. All right. So what 
uh, after Wyandotte, where did you work? And then what led you into establishing Lilac Center? Well, it was actually my husband. He um, encouraged me to go into private practice and um, open up the Lilac Center. I, I had a love for dialectical behavioral therapy. This was really kind of early on when dialectical be- behavioral therapy was just coming out. And I got approached by an insurance company asking to develop an adherent program. And so that's what launched the Lilac Center is that the insurance company um, thought that it would be a very effective uh, treatment model. And so for the first two years, they researched and we researched with Marsha Linehan's group. And the insurance company was phenomenal because they uh, not only referred people into the program, but also had a database of people that would have met criteria but weren't referred. And so um, you could tell the difference between the effectiveness of the treatment. Okay. So my, I, like I had never heard of DBT therapy or, or dialectal behavioral therapy until I was in rehab two years ago and I got exposed to some of the concepts there in rehab. I loved the way they framed up acceptance and change and those dialectical tensions and all that kind of stuff. So when I got back home from uh, this this rehab experience that I had, I started looking around Kansas City for DBT and found Lilac Center. So that's kind of how I got into it. But then I'm a reader. I study up on things. So like I, I ordered Marsha Lenahan's book. Is that how you say your last yep. name? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was fascinating. Like she's still alive. Um, she's the founder of this type of therapy, right? She's yeah. still alive. I'm sure you've probably met her. Yeah, you know I her. have. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about meeting her. How you got it? How you first discovered DBT, and you know, I just maybe a little bit about her story as well, because uh, I find that a little bit fascinating. Yeah. How here's this person who's relatively it's a relatively new therapy, yeah, in the whole therapeutic world of ideas, and yet here she is, still you know her, so that's kind of fun. So the first time uh, that I got to experience Marshall Linehan was at a summit. So they, uh, these big summit um, trainings go on, and they have all of these top people come and debate their theories. And so Marshall Linehan was debating Beck, and Beck developed cognitive therapy. And so it was fascinating to see these two icons on stage and and them kind of debating back and forth um, the validity of, of their uh, treatment. So dialectical behavioral therapy is different than cognitive therapy because it focuses more on behaviorally what someone can do to change, whereas cognitive focuses on changing automatic responses through your thoughts. And so I gravitate more to the behavioral therapy because I find it more difficult to change my thoughts. And uh, you, we've all heard the phrase, if you would just change the, your attitude, you can change the way you feel, mm-hmm. those type of things. But there's a reason why we have the beliefs that we have. And so to change those is, um, feels a little bit disingenuous. 
but to just to change the behavior um, and for it to work to change the behavior. Uh, it's uh, just a, a miracle, actually, when you see people just having to do something different than to feel or think something different. Um, so that was, oh, many, many years ago, uh, before I even uh, launched the Lilac Center, so 97. Okay. Um, and it's just, uh, she would be somebody that you would see at these big conferences or trainings and, and different things. Her story really is um, she suffered from borderline personality disorder and was in the hospital for many, many weeks. I think it was 21 re- weeks of hospitalization. Maybe it was 21. I can't remember. I just read her memoir, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't remember the details. But um, she had some really profound spiritual experiences and educational experiences that changed her way of thinking. And she was able to get out of the rut that she was in. And then um, she went back and really tried to study what helped her through mindfulness and all of the other skills and how to specifically help other people in that situation get out of those compulsions and addictive behaviors. And so uh, she got a PhD, researched and researched and researched all of these different um, therapy tools that have been around forever and ever. And then she just packaged together the most essential ones, saying these are the difference between people who are doing well and those that aren't. And if you can follow these universal principles, you can be back on track with life too. So um, anyways, she's... So so like before I went to uh, rehab and then came out and was reading some of her materials on DBT, I had never even heard of BPD. Um, so I, I thought I, I thought I was pretty well versed on a lot of diagnoses, but, uh, like bipolar and all these things as a pastor, you end up working with, I've worked with schizophrenics and bipolar, not, not clinically, but just as a support system. Right. And so, uh, so when I got into Marsha's material and then I started reading about borderline personality disorder, did she develop her? therapy specifically for that or was it was it just a part of her experience and so that's what came out of it but it but it applies to, to all kinds of people no the the people that she studied were people that were chronically suicidal and so that is a criteria for borderline personality disorder but um it ended up becoming a therapy for borderline personality disorder just because a lot of the criteria met um, what she was studying. However, it is a therapy that's proven to be effective kind of across the board. So borderline personality disorder, I just think of as a trauma response. And so if on one end of the continuum, you just have like generalized anxiety and, um, 
like we all have right now mm-hmm. with COVID and you don't want to get sick and you right. you want to do the right thing, but you don't never know what the right thing is. Um, and so you have kind of this general anxiety. And then, you know, kind of farther down the continuum, you might have post-traumatic stress disorder where you start having nightmares and intrusive thoughts. And then further down from that, you would have borderline personality disorder. And that's where it's a trauma response, and it's usually typical to people that have been traumatized before the age of eight with some sort of pervasive trauma. And so if um, you kind of are constantly triggered into these uh, reactivities of uh, extreme emotion, and the people that you're around don't know why, and so that... uh, Trauma response happens and uh, with seemingly huge emotions that come out of nowhere. And then kind of farther down from that would be um, DID or disassociative identity disorder. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting to me because, um, like, I'm not bipolar, I'm not borderline, I'm not disassociative, but I wrestled, I kind of had a, two, three year period of time where I had this meltdown. I've shared that publicly dealt with insomnia and then a few, just a few years of problematic drinking, uh, coupled up with prescription Xanax. So all that ended up causing me to make a bunch of bad decisions. And it, it caused a crisis, like a three quarter life crisis for me, I guess, instead of midlife, I was past midlife, but at any rate, and and so in in the midst of sort of that personal three quarter life crises, I found so many things in DBT to be helpful for me. Uh, and so um, maybe we could just give a kind of an overview. Maybe you could give an overview of of DBT principles. Um, the thing that stuck out to me is that big general dialectic between change and acceptance, acceptance and change. And so like in the uh, 12-step world, everybody says the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So I find it fascinating that DBT, like when you talk about these dialectical tensions in life, one of the big ones that frames up DBT is that tension between acceptance and change. Yeah. And yeah, give us give us some a little bit more detail about DBT and kind of a, a brief overview of it, if you would. So um, the dialectics is all about seeing that there's multiple truths that are happening at the same time. And you can create effective problem solving when you're able to see that there's multiple truths. So I don't have to be 100% right and someone else doesn't have to be 100% wrong, that there's truth in both sides. And so there's these dialectical dilemmas that happen constantly. And when a dilemma happens, it's when you get stuck in one of the two extremes. And the extremes are usually between rational thinking and emotional thinking. So they don't, uh, you can really be um, kind of hot and uh, reactive or cold and methodical. And so 
and neither of those are actually good. <laughs> so you you want to be in the middle in the middle, which is what she calls wise mind. Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to move forward seamlessly without any anxiety or tension. And so these dialectical dilemmas that happen are between uh, emotional vulnerability and self invalidation. Uh, and then uh, active passivity versus apparent competence, and unrelenting crisis versus an inhibited emotion. So essentially you do three things. If you're really highly emotional, you um, are very reactive, very impulsive, and it takes you a long time to calm down. And then if you're really um, extreme in your thinking, you oversimplify problem solving, you um, deny other people to share things with you, or you stop sharing personal experiences with others, and um, you punish yourself for having emotion. So when, when both of those things start happening over and over again, that's when people usually move to this very rigid point of view. So those are the uh, dilemmas that happen. Yeah. So I, I find this fascinating. Um, I was, so I, I've been, I think I'm one that grew up over-regulating my emotions, which uh, Marsha even talks about how that's very common in Western cultures, individualized cultures, and it, you know, it's good for goal setters. I'm very goal-oriented. So when it came to negative emotions, fear, anger, discuss those kind of things i i just tried to suppress them and move forward right yeah but in this meltdown that i had it's like i couldn't just keep suppressing things that i'd always been good at suppressing right i mean i didn't yeah i people would have just thought i was super stable all the time i probably was pretty most part all the time until i went through this meltdown and so then all of a sudden you know I've become more aware of how I really didn't listen to my negative emotions. I really didn't validate some of those experience, some of those feelings. And so suppressing them kind of didn't help me. So like now I've read a bunch of stuff on neuroscience, how our negative emotions are hardwired into the oldest part of our brain, fear. And, you know, um, gosh, these fear and fear and anger are, would be two huge ones. Right. And so, um, like, like hearing somebody say the other day, like a, a guy that wrote a book called permission to feel, and he's trying to get emotional education into the public school systems and how we, how we grow up with rational minds, right. Yeah. With no real emotional education in our whole public school systems. And so he would say, you know, we're not thinking people who have emotions, he says, we're emotional people who think occasionally, <laughs> which is an interesting way, you know, and you're talking about this tension between rational mind, emotional mind, right? Yeah. And then there's wise mind that's sort of the tension or balance. But what are the role of emotions in this in this 
therapy that you work with? I mean, how, how do people, how should people go about dealing with negative emotions in DBT? Well, what's fascinating is, especially in the population I treat, is that they are super perceptive when it comes to picking up on other people's emotion. And so you can, there are studies done with people that meet criteria for borderline personality disorder with a stack of like a hundred different images. And so you would flip through the images and it moves from a neutral uh, image of emotion to whatever the other emotion is going to be, let's, let's say anger. And in the study over and over again, people that have suffered trauma are much quicker to pick up another person's emotional um, what in inaccurately mm. what they're feeling. Mm. So, um, but their perception of why they're feeling the way they are is usually completely wrong. And so, if you why their why their own why their feeling or the other person? the other person's feeling. So the perception of the other person is incorrect. Is in, even though they picked up on it, they picked up on it. Okay. So, you know, if if I was treating someone, they came into my office, and let's say I was uh, annoyed with something, which happens frequently, just from my office to the lobby, and then coming back, I might see ten or fifteen things that I go, oh. Um, but their perception is that I'm angry with them. And so, and it's kind of a safety mechanism, like I've picked up on someone else's emotion, and, but then internalized it to somehow be about themselves. Oh, okay. And then adverse to that, they're terrible at recognizing their own emotional experience. And so they don't recognize when they're having feelings. So part of the therapy, there's kind of two parts, is that, you teach the emotion, and some of it is just memorization. So it's exposure with memorization. Like this particular event would cause anger normally in people. And people normally express anger by doing these things, cussing, yelling, slamming a door, those type of things, right? And the first 30 seconds to two minutes of an emotional response is completely innate to us. So my anger will be pretty consistent throughout my life for that first 30 seconds to two minutes. And so would yours. So if you're a door slammer, for instance, for that first 30 seconds, you might be tempted to get up and slam a door, right? But, or cuss or, or whatever. For people with trauma histories, they've been punished for their expression. And so anything that is repeatedly punished will... Uh, go away. So they stopped expressing their own emotional responses. They're over in tune to other people's emotional responses, internalizing more. And so that gets those really big emotional uh, upheaval. And uh, you, you didn't even, they didn't have any forewarning, didn't know where it was coming from. And so the first part is just exposure. Like we're going to expose your to small emotional experiences. And oftentimes I give the example of love and going to McDonald's and their jingle is I'm loving it. So if you got your order right and the fries were hot, you're, you can have this emotion of love for McDonald's. <laughs> My friend Jim Waggy will appreciate that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so you have these small experiences that happen and then... Um, 
they can tolerate them more the bigger experiences that start to happen in their life, whatever their emotion is. And so that first 30 seconds to two minutes, we really teach like that's exposure. And then we teach the second part is secondary emotions. So you want to talk about emotional experiences, communicate them. And uh, Daniel Siegel, who's my favorite author, he uh, says you got to name it to tame it. So if, if they can recognize their emotional experience, validate their own experience in the moment, then they can reduce the intensity of it. Yeah, th- I'm, this research is just coming through loud and clear from, you know, even brain science stuff is that learning how to identify an emotion, name it, even feel it. Yeah. Right. So you're, if I understand correctly, your primary emotions are basically all going to be hardwired into your body or they're all going to be registering physically. Correct. Yeah, and then the, the second part is mentalization. Like a lot of people that have been traumatized or had pervasive trauma do not realize that you have thoughts that go with emotion. And so they view their thoughts as facts. And they're just emotional thoughts. So if I got angry and I had angry thoughts, instead of defining myself as an evil, bad person for having these thoughts, I would just know everybody has angry thoughts and no big deal. It doesn't define who I am. Mm -hmm. And so to talk to someone else about those internal experiences and then what they're thinking, um, and that's kind of the beauty of group is that people talk about their thoughts and their experiences. And so it makes it less isolating mm-hmm. to have such big emotional responses. Yeah. So like shame, would shame be considered a core emotion in, in yeah. your world? Yeah. So So I felt like overwhelmed with shame. Like I know, I mean, like, cause I went under the influence of Xanax and alcohol. I, I made some bad choices, right? And it cost me a lot. Okay. So, um, so, I, so the guilt thing was there. I mean, what I did, but it was the deeper thing was a sense of, of shame. Like, like I'm, like I'm a bad pastor now. I'm a bad, you know, I'm, I, and, and it was really overwhelming. It felt like it was drowning me. And I'd never, I'd dealt with shame, I think, my whole life as a, as, as an emotion, but I never felt like I had, I never felt like I did in this the, that first year or so out of this experience where I was just felt like I was kind of like drowning in it. And then I feel shame about my shame, right? Like, like I feel embarrassed about being embarrassed. I feel shame about feeling shame. I feel, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's kind of this real trap that you can get your mind into. So I had, I had people tell me, you know, you've, you've got to be in safe places where you talk about that stuff, yeah. get it out. So I was thinking about your group therapy context there and yeah, how important for, those things are for people. For shame, it's shame is actually the only emotion that I can think of that you want to act opposite to it as soon as you recognize it. So if you've done something legitimately that has caused harm to others, you make amends. You make a commitment not to do it again and you let it go. If you feeling shame, but it's from your past or something that's happened to you, 
you speak about it over and over and over again. You kind of stand up for yourself. So shame is one of those emotions that you teach opposite action to you as soon as somebody recognizes it. I was, um, you know, Brene Brown mm-hmm. writes a lot about shame, I think. Well, she says, I study shame for a living, which <laughs> is <laughs> funny. But she uh, she talks about like sort of this core of never good enough as being kind of one of those things that, that is an indicator of shame, right? You're, you, you're, when you're thinking about your own personhood, you're not good enough yeah. or, or you're bad, whatever, you know, either the flip side of those two things. Is that your, yeah, is that but, the core know, of it? it? It is the core of it. And I think it's a fascinating emotion though, because, you know, I have a new puppy this year like I'm sure a lot of people do. And I don't think that dog has ever felt shame. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying really hard to get it to feel a little bit of shame when he potties on the carpet. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It's like, isn't that great? To to let it go and to step back into your position in life is, is what we're all called to do. Yeah. That's good. We need to be more like the puppy dog. We right? do. We do. It's <laughs> good stuff. So I'm I'm curious in your in your book where you're talking about dialectics, you quote uh, one, uh, one an author that helped me out a lot, Parker Palmer, and uh, he he kind of is a spiritual author. He his background I think is Quaker, but um, this is a quote that came from your book that I really liked on this dialectical tension issue and you said contradict or you quoted him contradiction paradox the tension of opposites these have always been at the heart of my experience and i think i am not alone i'm tugged one way and then another my beliefs and actions often seem at odds my strengths are sometimes canceled by my weaknesses myself and the world around me seem more a study in dissonance than a harmony of the integrated whole yeah. I resonated with that statement and uh and found it interesting that that's a part of the whole therapeutic model that is DBT. Yeah, the the philosophy of dialectics is so fascinating. So it was actually developed in the 1700s by Hegel. And so Hegel um was just it was just phenomenal of how he was seeing these um, multiple truths, but people wanting there to be just one ultimate truth. And so everything else needed to be discounted. And so he was the kind of the first to say, why don't we all um, find some way or some path to move forward? And then after Hegel came Marx. And so Marx, we all know, um, for communism. Mm-hmm. And so... But really, the philosophy was that we each have our own ultimate truth, and we're allowed to develop this ultimate truth. We'll be uh, able to fill a utopic society together. So if you're able to develop yours and I'm able to develop mine, we'll be able to live together in harmony. And so um, I think Marsha Linehan, she did not have that take on it. She had an internal take. So mm-hmm. between thoughts and emotion could be. There's, yeah. there's an ultimate truth that is separate. And I remember when my son was just four, he came to me and he said, Mommy, do you know your heart does two things? 
it beats blood to all of your body parts and it holds all of your love. Oh. And I thought that was a beautiful way to explain dialectics Mm. is that there's this really um, mechanical way that you can describe an experience in an intellectual way, but then there's an emotional way that, and we don't have language that even uh, can bridge the gap between the two, but we know that both are essential for us to thrive. So uh, it just honors in such a beautiful way both of those truths. Hmm. Very good. It's it's interesting. Um, I've read a bit of Hegel uh, and yeah. philosophy and that kind of thing. So I was working on a PhD in the Hebrew Bible, and the Hebrew mind is quite paradoxical. So when you read the Hebrew Bible, you can find passages that directly con- contradict each other. Like, but, the, but you can see the truth in both of them. So um, it could be something like, uh, how do we um, live out of, do we trust our emotions and our instincts and our intuition? And there's passages in the Hebrew Bible which would say, no, like the heart's you know, deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah, he was a kind of a negative prophet. Uh and like I was just, I was just with a group of physicians who who were dealing with, uh, in in a therapy group, okay, dealing with addiction issues, and all of them could could identify with like they don't want to trust their mind because they spent so many years uh, making bad decisions under the influence of alcohol. On the flip side, their same Bible would talk about. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And it's this positive view of your instincts and your heart and your desires and all that kind of stuff. And and so the tension, so the tensions are there, you know, even in even in these sacred scri- scriptural texts. I find some people call it non-dualistic thinking if you're in the Buddhist world, and and so then Hegel and some of these guys picked up on on some of these tensions in the philosophical world. It's I find it fascinating. Um, what about, uh, acceptance, radical acceptance? This phrase came up over and over again in the, the whole 12 step world, like, and and maybe it ties into shame a little bit too, but, um, that's one of the things I really loved about, about DBT was this emphasis on radical acceptance and then some of the practices around that help you get to that place. Talk about that a bit. Well, radical acceptance is um, about willingness to see the world as it is. And so not as you want it to be, but as it just truly is, without judging it, without requiring it to change at all. And so to see something and not require any change around it or put any judgment on it is difficult, difficult. It's very, very difficult. Like our mind just automatically wants us to to judge a situation. In fact, it's to not judge a situation can bring true joy. It's the only time we can experience joy is to not have any thought of how it could change to be better. And so radical acceptance is even taking your past or things that you don't like or things you don't like about yourself or others and just seeing it as it is and being willing to accept it and make a life anyways. 
And so Marsha Linehan uses the example of like somebody going to prison for a crime they didn't commit. And it's went all the way to the Supreme Court and it they're going to be in prison. So uh, what does this person do? And then she talks a lot about how to radically accept your life as it is. So even in the worst situations, you would have to have acceptance. I remember uh, facilitating a group after I had children. And someone asked me, you know, could you accept if something happened to one of your cho- one, of, one of your two children? And and I really was like, you know, like, no, <laughs> there's just no way. But then after some meditation, a few deep breaths, is that I will accept whatever is. And so I, it, there's this freedom that comes with not that I would want anything to happen, and I'm going to do everything in my power that they're safe and well taken care of. But I don't get to decide the outcome of things. And so... I can just put my best effort in, and whatever happens is uh, many other factors are involved in that besides my own will. So I think I think this is challenging for most people. Like you don't have to be a borderline personality disorder to Absolutely deal not, with these yeah. things, right? This is what has attracted me to this therapy model: is that I'm like I'm looking at it and going like every human being deals with all of these issues that are built, you know, that are in this therapy model. It's like, how do you, we're always wishing something was different, it seems like, or having a tr- having trouble accepting something that is, or somebody else that we have no control over, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, in the, in, in the 12-step world, that's a huge deal. You got to give up control. You can't, you got to recognize what you can't control, right? Um, and how you think about it and judge it and all these kind of things. You want it to be this and this and this and this. And you just, and then finally, you, you talked about joy in hitting this place of, you call it ex- radical acceptance, you call it surrender, you call it kind of yeah. letting go of your control, right? And, and then you can talk about that finding joy. And then what are some of the, some of the uh, methodologies that you help people find that joy, find that place? So, you know, radical acceptance is one of those concepts that are extremely hard to teach because it can come in an instant or someone can struggle for it throughout their whole life. So I think of situations that, take control of my mind, and I perseverate over them over and over again. And I think, why, you know, why did this person do this? Why did this person, you know? And I, it, it's, it's, it's a trap. And then I, even I can recognize my mind is so trapped by this. I wish I could just let it go. And then in a moment, it's gone. And so it's, it's like a gift, but you can't even control when you get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wish I could teach it. Like, if you do A, B, and C, mm-hmm. you can have radical acceptance over this. But the truth is, you have to do all of the distress tolerance skills to not make the situation worse while you're just waiting and praying that it's going to come at some moment in your life. And maybe 
a week passes, maybe a year passes, maybe a decade passes and it hasn't come, but it will. So give us give us a little example about, because I know two of the skill sets that you try to teach with, with acceptance are, are mindfulness and then distress tolerance. Yeah. How do you... How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. So mindfulness is all about observing the moment and just letting things be the way they are. And so you would, you would observe it and then you would describe it. So describing and observing would be two totally separate things. But your mind doesn't view them very separate. So you can observe something and then immediately you want to describe it either good or bad, or put some sort of label around it. So it's a period of time where you just set aside that you're not going to react to anything to. And then once you figure out what you want to do, you'll participate in a new way. And true participation in life creates no harm. So no harm to you, no harm to anybody else. Um, Sometimes when I teach this, I think of a vegan lifestyle, like... If I was truly serious about participating in life, I would change the way I eat even, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) So it's participating um, in a new way that moves you forward in um, a way that's very comfortable, that uh, you let go of all anger and vengeance and uh, needing to be right. And you just do what's most effective and you play by all of the rules and uh, you just do the next right thing is what they usually say in AA. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness, uh, and some of your exercises in your book, by the way, um, I, you know, I've looked through both of the books and read quite a bit of them, uh, Untangling You and Empowering You. Are those the two? You Untangled and You, un- you Empowered. And you Empowered, okay. And so in, in a lot of the exercises that you give people to do, it involves breathing. Uh, yes. Sen- talk about that a little bit, breathing as a way of achieving this mindfulness, and that's a part of the acceptance thing. So yeah, so with breathing, we always have that with us. And so we can focus our thoughts on our breath. So to practice mindfulness, to actually practice observing, you have to observe something. And the more you can throw your mind into what you're observing, the more the mind can synthesize information. And so the theory is actually called flow on how the mind synthesizes things together. And so when you're not focused and your mind is really scattered and all over the place, the ideal thing is to focus. And so when you're focusing, you can focus on your breath, breathing in for a count of five, holding it for a count of two and breathing out for a count of seven. You can do that over and over again until you feel settled. You can count backwards from 50 down to zero. On the inhale, you would just uh, say 50. On the exhale, 49, and try to get all the way back to zero. And these are really great exercises if you find yourself in situations where you want to be really reactive or impulsive or you're really anxious about something. It just calms you down and allows your mind to focus and do what needs to be done. Excellent. 
Excellent. I I have I've struggled to practice uh, some of the mindfulness techniques, um, but when I uh, but I've also had times when it when I really clicked. So I I, I must have gotten into that flow yeah. thing, right? Where like I I felt like I was relaxing and letting go. Um, some even use some some images that help me achieve that as I would focus on breath and stuff like that. I don't know. That's a fascinating yeah. study for me and, and some of those practices and how they affect our, our physiology, our brain, all those kind of things. So really Daniel Siegel says that there's three pathways that we can get to that place where we're calmer. And one is, is mindfulness or practicing meditation the other one is through exercise. And so when you go out and you ride your bike, mm-hmm. that really helps people um, in their minds kind of gather together. And you can't be impulsive if you're in the middle of a sporting event. And the last one is true love, surprisingly. So if, you, if you're actually communicating and, and being loving in a situation, it can help your mind and emotions. Awesome. That's good stuff. So the change part of this thing deals with um, personal pers- uh, skill sets with people, people skill sets, like, you know, behavioral skill sets. It deals with your emotional regulation. So in the acceptance change model, um, the change set is really a whole set of skills that you teach, right? Yeah. So, so with radical acceptance, it's taught that there's uh, really fourth ways that we can all address a problem. So there's thousands and millions of different problems that each of us can have, but there's only four ways that we can address them. So the first one is to solve the problem. So if you're going to solve the problem, we usually teach interpersonal effectiveness skills, how to be assertive, how to talk, how to speak up for yourself, how to maintain your self-respect, how to maintain a good relationship with someone else. The second thing that you can do if you have a problem is regulate emotion. So you can actually change emotion when you want to change it. So if I got mad at one of my children, let's say, I can change my emotion. And I can do that pretty quickly. Like I can look at their hands and realize that they have little hands and I don't need to be angry. They're going to learn and they're going to grow and it just fine. Um, So you can change emotion quite easily. uh, And that's what the emotion regulation skills teach. The third thing that you can do is you can radically accept and that's all of the distress tolerance skills. So you don't have to change the problem. You don't have to change your emotions around it. You don't have to like the problem. You can just see it as it is and be willing to make a life for yourself anyways. And the last thing that you can do is you can always stay miserable and make the situation worse. So a lot of people live in the last one. So this therapy is all about doing uh, yeah. the first three. Very good. So in we're in this COVID time. People are feeling stressed out in unusual yeah. ways. And so uh, I, I know I ran across this little guide that you gave for COVID-19 panic. And yes. Maybe maybe speak to that a little bit because people are listening right now. Maybe they're not 
in therapy. Maybe they're not struggling with a borderline or some other type of diagnosis, but they're struggling with life. They're struggling with stress, with school, with their kids, you know, with the uncertainties, with employment issues, masks, everything that goes on. Life isn't normal. It's just such a weird world we're living in right now. You called it the twilight zone, I think, in your, the, yes. your book here. So, yeah, this COVID-19 panic book is using these same skills, but they're specific to what's going on right now and all of our heightened anxiety and the um, fear that goes around it. So a lot of people are really worked up emotionally. We've been getting a lot of uh, new intakes into our center where people uh, are struggling to manage uh, their mental health around this time. So we're hopeful that... um, People find this book extremely useful. I know uh, I absolutely have and quote it all the time and love it. So um, that's it's. I think it'll be an invaluable resource. And the skills in it aren't just for COVID. I mean, they're they're just good, healthy skills for people. Right, they're life skills. So you you know we've been talking about. I think all of these things that we talked about are spiritual. Things I, I really think at the core of spirituality is connection your, with yourself, with uh, people, um, with something greater than yourself that's loving and caring. Uh, and, and, I, and I notice the word wholeness that, that is brought up in one of your books. And I thought about whole, like how do you view wholeness in, in your therapy model? I love that word, wholeness. Like well, we all need a... a some of that, right? Um, I view it more as like congruency between what we think, feel, and do. And so I believe we achieve a feeling of wholeness when all of those are in line, that they're not uh, fighting with one another, when we're doing something that we don't really believe in, or um, our all of our uh, interactions with people are, seem to be... Um, conflictual. And so if we are in a place of wholeness, all of those things line up. Congruence with what we think, feel, and do. Yeah. So um, there, there's a word in the Hebrew Bible, shalom. And that's a lot of times just used as a greeting, uh-huh. peace. But the, the, the heart of the word is, is this idea of wholeness. And we're uh, you know, where we're achieving some type of health in a lot of areas, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, that there's there's a sense of, of uh, I think, peace that is sort of invade. And you, and you speak of contentment in this, within this idea of, I think, of wholeness. Is that? Yeah. What, what do you think about contentment? What do you think about, and even I, and I've heard you speak of gratitude as maybe outworkings of uh, wholeness, I guess. If we're, if we're congruent with what we think, feel, and do, um, what is, what, what, what does contentment look like? What is feeling content and, and gratitude? Yeah. How do those play into this? Well, um, those are words kind of like radical acceptance. Like, you know it when you have it, and when you don't have it, 
you, you know it too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think of, you know, gratitude and with tomorrow being Thanksgiving, it's just a wonderful time to uh, think of what we have and then how to achieve that uh, awareness of those that are around us and our connection to those people. And so with COVID right now, I don't know about about everyone else, but we're not having a family gathering and we're not doing the same things that we did before. And how are we going to stay connected and grateful for one another? And um, I have a brother that's an ER nurse and he uh, was telling me things legitimately are really bad. Like he works in an ER that has eight beds and there's 10 patients there. So um, I have so much gratitude for him and I don't want him over for Thanksgiving. So um, how do I share that love with him and be connected to him and content with, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. We're all going to make, make it through this. And I think it's just staying present and, um, going ahead and making those phone calls and reaching out or doing things like this. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful for you today for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. So we will be airing this episode in the new year. Oh, okay. But tomorrow, as we're talking, is Thanksgiving Day as we're um, having this conversation. And and this this, uh, contentment and gratitude go hand in hand, I think. Yeah. I, I've I've read that in our in some brain science stuff that negative things stick to us like Velcro. Yeah. And positive things te- tend to slip away like Teflon. And so uh, it's the way our brains wired, like that that old brain fear, anger hardwired so deeply that negative you know the fight flight stuff. So. So I so what are some ways that we can practice gratitude every day, not just around the holidays, but every day of our life? And how do we cultivate that in such a way that it sticks, like these positive things stick to us? How do we do that? Sure. I think that uh, being uh, gentle, interested in others, validating of other people and ourselves, and being easygoing. And if you can't do that all the time, totally fine because nobody can. But if you can do it first thing in the morning, you know, or the first time you're meeting someone at work, uh, those those little things that we do in our interactions that really only take you know, 30 seconds to a minute uh, can change the course of how people are interacting with you and vice versa. And it can uh, make that positive uh, feeling of gratitude return. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. Um, Maybe as we close this out, maybe thinking of people who are listening right now, you know, they're starting 2021 and they're going, gosh, is 2021 going to be any better than 2020? <laughs> All that we've experienced, it just seems crazy, right? All of the world that we live in. But give us some uh, closing thoughts here as we face 2021 and, and the outlook on this new year. I think the outlook needs to be looking at the silver lining, like what 
are the things that changed, the ways that you slowed down, the ways that you reconnected with the people in your immediate circle over the last year and how you can maintain that moving forward and not just kind of jump back into a crazy life or uh, a crazy uh, reactive situation. So at the beginning of 2020, I told my family and friends, it's going to be a year of amazing change, and boy, it has been. So um, they uh, still tease me to this day going, we don't want you to say it's going to be a good year again. (laughs) So I'm not going to say 2021 is going to be a good year, but I think we need to look at what was good about 2020 too. That's good. Well, thank you so much uh, for your work in in the Kansas City area, and I'm sure it goes way beyond that, but um, thanks for your commitment to mental health and for starting Lilac Center. I, I've, as I've gotten to know it, I've met several people that are close friends who have been blessed by your work, and so we greatly appreciate what's happening. So you have two offices, one in, in North Kansas City, one in... Overland Park, is that right? Or where is your site? It's in Mission, Kansas. Mission, okay. Mm -hmm. And we're opening up a new location in uh, Lee Summit. So if somebody wants to reach out, what are the ways they can do that and connect with Lilac Center? Uh, They would just call our main number. It's 816-221-0305. And uh, if they push one, they'll get help right away. It is an answering service when you push one. And if you push any other number, you're going to get our back-end staff that will be directly available to you. So uh, either either way is completely uh, wonderful, and we'd uh, love, to, love helping. What's your website? Uh, lilaccenter.org. Lilac Center, L-I-L-A-C lilaccenter.org. So, well, thank you so much for taking time to do this, Amy. And I want to just thank all of you who have tuned in with us today. And uh, we appreciate you following Spirituality Adventures and God bless you.